South African conservationist West Mathewson raised two baby lions on his property that he saved from being hunted. His family took these two cubs in and they raised them as his own on their property. He fed them, he played with them, he walked them, and they treated these cubs as part of their family. The cubs grew, and his family became attached to them in this process. However, one fateful morning, while West Mathewson was walking these two lions, one of them turned on West and then proceeded to attack and kill him without warning. The lions then escaped to another property nearby and they killed another man. We can only wish that West and his family never kept or treated these lions as pets, but saw their intrinsic danger that it brought to his family and those around him. This real tragic story serves to illustrate how we often treat sin. Too often we treat our sin like West treated these pet lions. We feed our sin. We coddle our sin. We make friends with our sin. And it continues to grow stronger and stronger and stronger until suddenly out of nowhere, you're devoured whole and you're ravaged up completely. And while the lions took this man's life, we learn that sin is far more serious and deadly than these lions. For it has the power to take our very souls to hell for all eternity. This brings us to a very serious and very sobering text this morning. Perhaps a text that we wish didn't exist in the Bible. Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 50. Will you please go ahead and turn there with me in your copy of the scriptures? Mark 9, 42 through 50. Jesus says, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt should lose its flavor, how can you season it? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. As we come to our text this morning, we realize that Jesus is in the middle of teaching his disciples some very very important lessons. Up to this point, Jesus has been teaching his disciples what true greatness looks like. 
True greatness is serving others for the sake of Christ. It's not the road to self-promotion that makes one great, but it's the giving of self for others for the sake of Christ that makes one great. It's serving little children in verse 36 and others like them who have nothing to offer in return. This is what true greatness is. But Jesus now switches gears here as he gives some serious warnings to those who would choose to take an alternative path. This brings us to verse 42. Jesus begins by revisiting the little children he just mentioned in verse 36, saying, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. In the ancient world, grain was ground up by large millstones. And these millstones were so heavy, they were pulled by donkeys and large oxen. We find Jesus saying here, if anyone causes one of these young children or young believers or young converts in the faith to fall away from faith in me, it would be better if he died in this gruesome way of having a huge millstone tied around his neck and then thrown into the sea. How, how does this image strike you as, you as you think about it? Having a massive millstone tied around your neck and being dragged to the bottom of a lake. I don't know about you, but drowning in my mind is one of the worst ways to die. That and being dragged to the bottom of the sea. But I think that's what makes this all the more terrifying. We should be horrified that this is better and preferable to the alternative option, which is causing a vulnerable new believer in Christ to fall away. To lead another believer to fall away from faith in Jesus is a terribly dangerous thing. Make no doubt about that. Why? Because the judgment to follow on such a person is far more worse and terrible. And Jesus will elaborate on such judgment here shortly. But before we go any further, it's important for us to all consider who Jesus is talking to. Maybe we forgot but Jesus is talking to his 12 disciples, the future leaders of the faith. And he wants them to take seriously their influence over others, especially the young ones in the faith. He's warning them to not use their influence for self-promotion or worldly gain, but to use their influence to build up others in the faith. This is especially important as we remember in verse 38 that the disciples right before this, were trying to stop a man who was doing miracles in Jesus' name because he wasn't following them. We're given the impression that the disciples may have been doing exactly what, what, what Jesus was warning them against here as they were trying to stop this man from following Jesus fully because of their jealousy. And so because of their self-promoting jealous spirit, they use their influence to try and stop him. He's not following us. So stop these miracles in Jesus' name. Jesus is essentially saying to them, don't 
do this. Don't use your influence to crush others in jealousy or in self-promotion, but use your influence to build one another up in the faith. Build up those who are helpless and poor and weak and needy. Value those who are new in their faith and protect them. Don't lead them away. For Christ cares about all of them deeply. He cares about his children. So be warned that he will judge you if you lead any to fall away from the faith. The call for, the, for us then is to realize that our own influence, no matter how great, no matter how small, can be used to lead another away from the faith. And this is a very serious thing, for God cares about his children. He cares about each of them, and he desires that none should perish or fall away. And this is evidenced through the consequences awaiting a person who should lead another into sin and away from Christ. So we must recognize that God cares for those who are younger in the faith. And we must be careful to watch out for them, to use our influence to guide them towards Christ. From here, Jesus tra transitions from the dangers of leading others to fall away to the dangers of one falling away himself. Rather than turn down his strong words of warning, Jesus turns up and intensifies the language used in his warnings to us. He says in verse 43, And if your hand causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die, the fire is not quenched. These verses are image-filled. They're meant to grip us. And as we read them, perhaps several questions have crossed your mind. For one, is Jesus really saying that we should literally cut off body parts if it prevents us from sinning or falling away from the faith? And if he's not saying that, what is he really saying here? So circling back, is Jesus telling us to literally cut off body parts if he keeps us from sinning or falling away from the faith? And I don't believe he's saying that here. But how do we know this, right? All of you still have your limbs here from what I can see, so you're not like knacking out body parts. That's, that's a good thing. But why do we not take Jesus literally here in the cutting off of literal limbs? And the simple answer is that we know that Jesus is speaking in hyperbole because body mutilation, with the exception of circumcision, was strictly forbidden in Judaism. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 1 is one such passage where God explicitly states that the Jews were forbidden from doing this. So then if Jesus isn't talking about literal amputation, what is he saying? Why is he using such graphic unpleasant imagery? Why is he talking about knacking off our hands, our feet, our eyes in such gruesome ways? 
Jesus is intentionally using this graphic imagery and strong language so that we would understand and feel the weight of sin and falling away from the faith. Jesus is saying it is better to lose what we consider a valuable, indispensable part of the body that's causing you to sin and stumble in the faith if it means you'll be saved in the end. It's worth it. It's better than losing your soul for all eternity. So let there be no mistake. There is no sin worth holding on to as it will lead you away from the faith, ravage your soul, and cause you to be thrown straight into what Jesus calls the unquenchable fires of hell. Jesus drives this point home as he references the reality of hell several times. And I think for all of us here, we don't like to think about the reality of hell as it's uncomfortable and it's unpleasant. And when we talk with others, they look at us like we're insane and crazy. But Jesus doesn't shy away from his existence. And he strongly warns us about its reality three times here. Better to lose your hand that's causing you to sin or fall away rather than be thrown into hell. Better to lose your foot that's causing you to sin or fall away than to be thrown into hell. Better to lose your eye that's causing you to sin rather than be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. We can't get away from it. He's mentioning it over and over and over again. And in reference to these three parts, the hand, the foot, and the eye, Jesus is driving home the point that sin is dangerous and it must be fought in all parts of our life because eternity is on the line and the consequences are incalculable. So Jesus tells us explicitly, if sin is left unchecked in our lives, it may lead us away from the faith and end up destroying our souls for all eternity. So we must take sin seriously and cut it off from our life. The words of well-known Puritan John Owen, be killing sin or it will be killing you. I think too often in our nominal Christian culture, we downplay the effects of sin, don't we? We think we have the power to control our sin. We treat our sins like West treated his pet baby lions. We pet it, we play with it, we allow it to exist in our home, in our life. But as we feed this pet sin, it grows and it becomes stronger. And one day it will devour us whole without warning. And it will take us to the fires of hell where it is unquenchable and unbearable. So sin is not something to play around with. It's dangerous and it requires radical action to be taken against it. So Jesus calls all of his followers to make war with sin in our own life. Do not give peace to it for there are devastating eternal effects if sin is left alone to grow and gain power in our life. It will rob you of life eternal and the kingdom of God. And this is of utmost value. So as we evaluate our own lives, even this morning, 
do we evidence a life oriented towards killing sin as he calls us to? They take radical action against it. Or are we instead treating sin like a pet and failing to see the dangers there? As we consider this, we must realize that our physical bodies manifest invisible spiritual realities. Our physical bodies bring about invisible spiritual realities. Put another way, if God has truly saved us and made us citizens of his kingdom, then do we evidence a life as citizens of his kingdom where we conduct ourselves in holiness as those who are being saved from sin? Are we bearing the fruit of our salvation as we kill sin? Or do we instead evidence through our actions that we belong to the kingdom of darkness as those who are still being given over to slavery, to sin, and its serious consequences. If we are truly saved, then we should, each of us, be progressing and evidencing more and more a life freed from sin and be imitating our Heavenly Father as children of God. But if we're not, if we're not, then may Jesus' stark warning here wake you up to consider once more that eternity is on the line. Those that live for themselves and in unrepentant sin will not inherit the kingdom of God, for wide is the gate to destruction. With this strong warning, then, we are called to examine our lives, each of us, and then to endure understanding the dangers of sin. And as we look at these last two verses, I believe we are called then to endure as salt in this world with the reality of eternity at stake. This brings us to what many believe to be the most difficult verse to understand in all of Mark, a verse that many commentators consider very convoluted and unclear. After warning us that If sin isn't cut off and it will lead you to hell, Jesus says, for everyone will be salted with fire. For everyone will be salted with fire. Verse 49. Now, there are many different ideas from commentators all over as to what is being said here. And if we're honest, no one is 100% certain as to what Jesus means by this phrase. It's difficult to know for sure what Jesus means here. But as we approach such texts in scripture where the meaning isn't entirely clear and there's a wide range of uncertainty from godly people coming to different conclusions, how do we respond? How do you respond when you come to a convoluted text where the meaning isn't immediately discernible? How do you respond? Do we just skip over the debated text and pretend it doesn't matter? Do we ask others for help or do we, in frustration, question why God didn't make this easier to understand for us? I mean, God in all of his power could have easily given us the clear meaning here. He has that kind of power and capability. But why doesn't he sometimes? Why doesn't he sometimes make all of scripture extremely clear? And I think, one, God wanted us 
to be heavily reliant upon his word. And by having these types of convoluted verses, we are forced to study the Bible more than ever, to mine its depths, to search the scriptures over and over again, to study the context and the verses and everything around that unclear verse. We are forced to know God's word better with these convoluted verses than without them. But then secondly, I think he allows us so that we would grow in humility. Grow in humility. We don't know everything there is to know. We don't. And when we come to things like this where we're not 100% certain, it should cause us to be humble and to realize we don't know everything and so we must trust God all the more who is the only one that is all-knowing. So as we come to this verse, I don't come pretending I necessarily know the 100% certainty, but I think there are at least two good interpretations to verse 49. And the main difficulty comes with the phrase, everyone will be salted with fire. Now it could be used in one of these senses that I'm about to explain, or the other, or it could be used in both. It could be used in both senses. So the first interpretation, everyone being salted with fire could be in reference to everyone that rejects Christ and lives for self. Everyone who rejects Christ will be salted with fire. And salt, acting as a preservative, would preserve such individuals for the fires of hell for all eternity. This interpretation would be consistent with Jesus' use of fire and the eternality of hell that he's referenced three times already. The salt will preserve them in this state for all eternity. A terrifying thought. So that's one way we could take this verse. The other, the other possibility and perhaps even dual meaning is that everyone really means everyone. Not just unbelievers, but believers too. Everyone will experience a salting of fire. Not just those who reject Christ, but those who live for Christ and give their life up for him. So, for those that live for Christ, his life is given up as a salty sacrifice for God, but he will be preserved. And this idea makes a lot more sense when we study the Jewish sacrificial system. If we look at Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13, we read that the Jews were to season each of their offerings with salt. They were warned and cautioned against forgetting to salt their offerings to God. For the salty offering, combined with the fire, burned up, made it, made it acceptable to God. The salt reminded them of their preserved covenant with God as they burned up their salted offering. I think there might be a similar idea here for the believer and what Jesus may be alluding to. For the believer today, we no longer offer up grain or meat sacrifices on an altar to God. Instead, as Paul mentions in Romans 12:1, we offer up our lives as a living sacrifice to God. We are to be a salty sacrifice that is acceptable and pure for God, so that when we are burned up, we please God in this life. So Jesus may have in mind one or both of these interpretations. But whatever way you lean as to what Jesus is referring here, what is clear 
is that Jesus focuses on the goodness of the salt in verse 50 for the believer. He focuses on the goodness of the salt in verse 50 for the believer. Salt is good, but if salt should lose its flavor, how can you season it? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. What is clear is that the believer is to be salty. We are to act as a preservative in this world for God as we live according to his statutes, which is our reasonable service. But if we lose our saltiness, if we fail to be preserved from sin, how can we be used? The answer is we can't. We can't be used if we are no longer operating as salt does in this world. If we fail as a church to be preserved from sin and the temptations of the devil and the influences of the world, we cannot preserve ourselves or act to preserve anyone else around us. We are only good to be thrown out on that last day. This is incredibly important, not just for us to be reminded of, but for the disciples here. For they were acting as saltless individuals right before this. If we look back to verse 34 and 38, we're reminded that they're arguing about who's the greatest. And they're complaining that they don't have more followers. Rather than acting as salt and being preserved for God's purposes, living for him, a living sacrifice, they're instead living saltless, independent lives, centered on themselves rather than God. So Jesus calls them to respond by living and operating as salt in this world and to so have peace among themselves as they adopt the mindset of a servant of Jesus Christ. Those who live as salt are those who are submitted to the Lordship of Christ. As we come to the end of this difficult passage with the realities of hell, how are we to respond? How are we to respond to such passages? And first, I think we respond with soberness and seriousness about the reality of hell. As we've noticed, Jesus doesn't mince words. He doesn't ignore its reality. And he does so, not because he's mean, but because he loves us and he cares about us. He doesn't desire that any should go to this place of eternal torment. And that's why he's warning us here in such stark terms. Our sin against God, if unrepented of, will surely take us there. We should see Jesus' warning here then as loving, as he desires us to examine our own life and do whatever it takes to avoid this eternal death. As believers, I think sometimes, again, we shy away from this uncomfortable truth. I mean, who among us likes to talk about such horrible judgment? But the reason we talk about hell and we believe in its existence is because Jesus does. And because our Savior speaks of it so plainly and in such horrific terms, we lovingly speak of the same and warn one another of this destination for those who pursue sin. So we don't shy away from talking about hell, even though it's unpopular and very polarizing. 
We don't pretend that we know better than Jesus and avoid the topic altogether. No, we teach the truths and we lovingly and compassionately warn others of this final destination for those apart from Christ. Second, we must respond to this text by abandoning any sin that seeks to hold on to you. As we reflect on Jesus' word this morning, we realize that there is no sin. There is no sin worth holding on to if it means hell for all eternity. Sin tells us that we can play with it, we can coddle it. It's not that bad, it's only temporary. But Jesus' warning here is that sin if left unrepented of, will continue to grow and grow and grow until you lose the most precious thing in your life, your soul. So if there is known sin in your life, brother and sister, I encourage you to rid yourself of it, to not play with it, but to put it to death as we hear Jesus' warning here this morning. And then I encourage you, to respond by running to Christ our Savior. Run to Christ. If you hear his voice today, don't harden your hearts as the Israelites did in the rebellion, but turn to Christ and plead for his grace and help to turn and to kill sin. You see, Jesus didn't just warn us about hell and tell us to take radical action against sin, and then leave us on our own. He did something so that we could be forgiven of our damning sins and to conquer them. Jesus loved us so much that he would suffer for our sins. He took our penalty and he was charged with our guilt. He would die a gruesome death on the cross for our sins against God because that's exactly what it would take for our forgiveness the death of God's only son. Jesus would bear the hell which we deserve for all eternity so that we could be forgiven and we could have peace with God. So value all the more deeply the salvation won for you in Jesus Christ because this is exactly what we deserve. Run to Christ for he will help in time of need. Our conquering Savior has conquered in our stead, and he will hold us fast.